in the year 490 BC, before Christ, the Persian Empire invaded Greece. There was a huge battle in a place called Marathon, which is roughly 26 miles away from the city uh, Athens, which was the, the capital of Greece at the time, it still is. And as you can imagine, a battle like this would have created a lot of uncertainty within Greece. These foreign invaders have come in. While the army is out at war, citizens would be waiting at home, anxious to find out if their homes were going to be invaded. Would their homes be overtaken by a foreign empire? It's hard for us to imagine a world where there are long delays between events that happen and us finding out about those events. Today, if something happens, almost anywhere in the world, we know about it pretty much instantly. So if Taylor Swift eats a ham sandwich in Baltimore this morning, we will get full reports here in Phoenix before she even gets to dessert. We live in a different sort of time, but it wasn't always like that. Before the internet, before electricity, before the telegraph, it was a little more difficult to spread news. It traveled much more slowly. And so here the Greeks are waiting for a life and death urgent message. Well, the Greeks won the Battle of Marathon and they defeated the invading army. And as the story goes, they sent a man named Phaedipides as a courier, he's a messenger, to bring this message of good news back to the city. And so he ran 26 miles into the city with this great news, and as he arrived, he shouted the good news. The, the Greek word is Nike, where we get our word Nike from. The war was won. The enemy was defeated. The means by which the message arrived, this good news arrived, was the courier who traveled on foot. Uh, despite my study, uh, I found that this was not support exegetically, historically, for preachers wearing $700 Nikes, uh, Jordans. You can look up preachers and sneakers later if, you, if you'd like to hear more about that phenomenon. That's a real thing. This is weird to us because news gets to us immediately. But this was a concept here where there's a delay between what happened and hearing about it. But the Old, the Old Testament Israelites would have been familiar with this. The New Testament church would have been familiar with this concept of needing a messenger to bring good news to us. That highly anticipated good news would be met with joy. There was anticipation, and here comes the message, and it's met with joy. Well, in the same way, the gospel is a message of victory that should bring us great joy. The news that Christ is the end of the law has reached us. The message that we can receive the righteousness that we need by faith alone has come near to us. The word that Satan has been conquered by the blood of the Lamb has arrived. The report that God has achieved full and complete victory over the powers of death and sin and hell in the person and work of Jesus has been published. Our happiness, our joy, as creatures created by God and in desperate need of some good news, of salvation, centers on this message of the defeat of sin, death, and the devil, this gospel. But not everyone receives this message with great joy. And in today's passage, we see that some of Israel, for example, though they had heard the message, 
they had understood the message, they did not trust the message. They responded to the gospel with, with disbelief. They responded to the gospel with disobedience and opposition. So I submit that the big idea of today's passage this morning is this. The highest aim of preaching is faithful gospel proclamation met with faithful reception. The highest aim of preaching is faithful gospel proclamation met with faithful reception. And I've got just two main points for us. The first, gospel preaching pursues the obedience of faith. See that in verses 14 through 17. And then second, God offers his gospel to disobedient people. We see that in verses 18 through 21. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we stand here as uh, humbled people, recognizing that we are simply recipients of the good news. We are grateful for your word that has reached us here uh, on the opposite side of the world from where it was first written. Uh, we recognize that we are recipients of your mercy and grace, being able to even hear your word and to sit in a room here freely and hear it preached. Help us not to take this for granted this morning. Help us to focus. Father, may we be not just hearers of your gospel, but obedient to your gospel. By your spirit, would you make that happen? We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one. Gospel preaching pursues the obedience of faith. We see this hopefully from verses 14 through 17. So just before our passage this morning, starting in verse 14, in verse 13, Paul told us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the proper response to the gospel. Uh, you hear about the gospel, the salvation now that has been freely offered in Christ, and you believe, you trust the message. You put your faith in Jesus and trust in his righteousness and not in your own. You respond in faith by calling out to God. Paul calls that response the obedience of faith. Paul was all about publishing the good news, spreading the gospel, to, to give it to everyone he could possibly so that they would have the opportunity to respond in the obedience of faith. And so he put a great emphasis on the necessity of preaching. Notice in verses 14 and 15 first that the church is responsible to promote faithful gospel preaching. This is point A under 1, 1A from verses 14 and 15 in particular. The church is responsible to promote faithful gospel preaching. Let me just read verses 14 and 15 back into our hearing for us. Verse 14, how will then they call on him in uh, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So in these two verses here, we have four rhetorical questions that are chained together in a row to illustrate a point. They're followed by an Old Testament quotation, which we are very familiar with Paul and this particular passage of Scripture loves to allude to the Old Testament uh, Scripture to emphasize and support his points. 
There are six allusions to the Old Testament just in these eight verses, and we won't be able to obviously go into each of them in detail. But logically, what's happening here is Paul is painting a picture. Follow this train of thought here. In order to respond positively to the gospel, someone's going to need to hear the gospel first. So notice the action words that are just there in these verses, in verses 14 and 15, the action words, the verbs, call, believe, hear, preach, send. To call, someone would need to believe that she would be heard when she calls to God. To believe that God would save her, this hypothetical person, well, she would have to hear about who God is. She would have to know what God has done for her in Christ. Well, in order to hear that information, who God is and what he's done for her in Christ, she'd have to have someone preach to her to publish that good news. And in order to have one preach to her, they would need to be sent with that good news. This is the the chain of thought here. Now, if we just flip that order backwards, it becomes even more clear. You start at the end and you can see the train of thought even more clearly. Christ sends a messenger, the messenger preaches, People hear, hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. That really is the chain of thought that Paul is painting out here, and it makes a lot of sense. It's irrefutable. That's the clear flow of thought, what it, what it takes, humanly speaking, for someone to become a Christian. I sort of think of this as the human responsibility angle of the golden chain of redemption that we see at the end of Romans chapter 8 where we see all of God's divine activities and bringing someone to faith and justification and glorification. Here, it seems like we're getting the human angle, humanly speaking, what is necessary for someone to come to faith. What is our responsibility knowing the gospel? But even here in these verses, notice that the first thing that has to happen, the first actor is God. God must act first. The first step in this chain is for Christ to send a messenger. I know it's at the end of the the passage here, but really it's logically the first. And that's why our header here under 1A is that the church is responsible for promoting faithful gospel preaching. Someone must send them. Gospel preachers don't send themselves. The word apostle, which means uh, someone who is sent, is a word that comes up a lot in the New Testament, and you understand that that is someone who has been sent on the authority of someone else. They've been deputized under the authority of someone who has sent them. So where does that authority come from? Well, Paul tells us earlier in the book of Romans where his authority of apostleship came from, he received apostleship as a grace from Christ, which means he was sent by God to bring the gospel out, the obedience of faith into the nations. So Christ sent Paul as uh, an apostle with his good news to deliver that message. Now track with me, the, uh, the office of apostle is over. None of y'all are apostles. I certainly am not an apostle. There are no more apostles now that scripture has been finished for the sake of clarity. But Christ is still sending folks out with that same apostolic message The message that Paul had, God's gospel, is the same apostolic message that I hope to proclaim to you from his word this morning. How is Christ doing that? How is Christ sending people out with this gospel message? Through his church. 
Christ's authority to call preachers and to send them out on his behalf comes through the authority that he has established in his church. His one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Why am I making such a point out of this? In part, because I would love for you to be a little bit extra careful with anyone who says that they're a Christian thought leader or preacher or author or speaker or poet or musician who does not belong to a faithful local church. It's the job of the church to recognize, to equip, to support, to authorize gospel preachers. And it's the job of the church to make sure that that gospel preacher is maintaining fidelity to the apostolic message. This definitely, of course, applies to qualified men who are called to pastoral ministry within the church, but I would suggest it also applies to men and women who are sent out as evangelists into the world with the same message of the gospel, both locally in evangelism and then globally through missions. So that includes all of y'all who are members of this church. You are the evangelistic program of Trinity Bible Church. We gather around the word in worship, as we heard about this morning in one of our 915 equipped classes that Lucas uh, so taught for us so well this morning. We gather around the word in worship, and then we're sent back out with the gospel message in order to share it with those whom we come across. So you are invited to bring the gospel to anyone you come across. And if you want to buy some expensive Jordans, that's on you. We know that you know the gospel if you're a member of Trinity because we ask you to articulate it to us when you join. So you can't say, I don't know what I need to know. You do. You have what you need to know to share the gospel. I hope that you would be faithful with those opportunities to to pray for those opportunities, to engage in them. But this has implications not just for local evangelism, but also for missions, for missions as well. In order to be sent out as a missionary, someone really needs to be trained and well-known in a faithful church first. I would, say, I would suggest that in order to be sent out as a missionary, it might be irresponsible uh, to do it yourself. If you call yourself a missionary and enter into the field without proper training or preparation or the sending authority of a church, That's why missionaries really should be vetted and trained and known within a particular local church for a time before they are sent out. Sent out with the church's approval, the church's support. The same thing would apply to church plants, I would suggest. They should be started from other churches. Churches should not plant themselves out of thin air. Listen, I'm not saying that parachurch ministries like missions organizations or church planting networks are not helpful they can be very helpful as supports to the church, but it's the church's responsibility in the end to be God's primary instrument for missions and even the, the final product of missions is planting more local churches. This is God's gospel. This is the way it's introduced in the beginning of Romans. Our responsibility as a church, like any faithful mailman, is not to open up the envelope and switch some details Our responsibility is simply to deliver the message. We don't change the message. We simply faithfully deliver the message and let it do its work. The church is responsible to guard and to promote the gospel. And he involves us in this 
in playing a part in letting people know that they can call on the Lord to be saved. That's why it's such an honor to raise support with other churches, like we heard about this morning from Harry. Other churches in in China, as we're anticipating that harvest offering later this fall, in just a few weeks. It appears that the window to act in order to support the church in China might be closing to some degree with Xi Jinping's third, uh, his third uh, term, thank you, dialogical preaching. Xi Jinping has a third term that he's entered into and it seems like the, the oppression is notching up a little bit. So this might be an important strategic time to be able to get resources into the hands of those Christians there in China that they might be able to publish and herald the good news to those who have not yet heard it. It's an important time for the gospel to be heard in order for it to be received, but it's not just enough for it to be heard. One must obey the gospel. 1b from verses uh, 16 to 17. Hearing the gospel is not enough. One must obey it. Verses 16 and 17 say this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to believe that he is the end of the law. This is verse four, chapter 10. To believe the gospel is to obey the gospel. These are synonymous terms for Paul. He's using them interchangeably almost. And we can see this elsewhere from scripture, like Abraham. Abraham obeyed the call of God on his life to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 11. In the gospel, we hear the call to repent and to believe And so it is our responsibility to respond in repentance and in faith. The letter to the Romans begins and ends with this phrase, the obedience of faith. In the beginning, Romans chapter one, verse five, right at the beginning of Paul's letter, he says that he received grace and apostleship, that means he was sent by God, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is the beginning of the book of Romans. And then even at the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 16, verse 26, Paul there again says, the gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, see that missionary impulse, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So this concept of obedience of faith going out to all the nations is a repeated theme in this letter and we can see it playing out even here in our passage this morning. Now, Paul is still dealing with the role of Israel. There's a difficult topic here. Israel has been given these promises, and yet they are rejecting said promises. He quotes from Isaiah to establish the principle that not everyone who hears the gospel will respond positively in faith. Faithful gospel proclamation is not always met with faithful reception. I hope that's an encouragement to you in your evangelism to know that that is something that you ought to expect. Not all will obey. That's an understatement. There's a minority of those who will obey. It's a relative few who hear the gospel and respond in faith and who will call out for salvation. But we saw this play out even in the earthly ministry of Jesus in John chapter 12. He alludes to the same verse here as well. John does. 
So Jesus in this passage has just explained that he would be lifted up, he would be crucified, and he would draw all men to himself. He's explaining who he is and what he's come to do. John 12, verses 36 to 40 then say this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So faith comes from hearing who Jesus is. He just explained who he was, and they did not receive it faithfully. They rejected it. Of course, this doesn't mean that it's exclusively something that only can be heard Faith comes from hearing. We would understand that this would include even Braille. You can feel the words in that sense. You can see the word. You can hear the word. It's really just a matter of processing the information, bringing it into your mind. The good news must be published in order for that to happen. That gospel, of course, is preached weekly in faithful local churches around the world, one of which we just prayed for this morning. Uh, Troy and Garden Lakes not far from us, where they're no doubt preaching this same gospel. But that gospel is not always met with faith. Sometimes the gospel is met with disbelief. Sometimes it's simply met with disinterest or distraction. Have you thought much about your responsibility to listen actively to preaching? I mean, evangelistically, someone might reject the gospel, and that's a a sobering thing to think about, but this doesn't only apply to non-Christians. Have you considered what your responsibility is in listening to preaching? In terms of your discipleship, do you consider yourself someone who is a hearer of the word only or a doer of the word? Uh, Even if you hear the word, you recognize that that does not mean that you're listening. Do you understand the distinction between those things? Uh, Hearing it, it's coming in, but not actually listening to it. We train ourselves in distraction to the point that we only half pay attention to things much of the time. It genuinely takes effort to follow along and actively listening to a sermon. I know. I'm out there often as well. Preaching is not a professional performance for your listening pleasure. Faithful preaching is exposing you to God's voice through his word. This is not a passive activity for you. You and I are in this together. We're kind of a team. I'm laboring to explain. You're laboring to listen. My goal is to make continual progress as a preacher, slowly, step by step. But when I'm in the pew... I have a responsibility there to increase step by step, incrementally, progressively, to be a better listener, a hearer, actively listening to the word as well. Jesus gives the parable about the word landing on different types of soil, the parable of the soils. Some hard soils don't allow the word to settle in, don't allow the word when it comes and falls to take root, but some ground has been tilled Uh, The weeds have been pulled, the dirt clods have been broken up so that the seeds, when they fall on it, might take root. Now, if we follow that analogy, we recognize that that doesn't happen by itself. 
that needs to be cultivated in a very literal sense in the parable in order for that seed to fall on soil that would accept it, receive it, absorb it, allow it to grow down. Your heart needs to be cultivated so that it's softened to God's word and not hardened. This is not something that passively happens. How can you, how can I, improve on our hearing of the word of Christ so that our faith might be continued to be built up as we gather here and worship together? Well, first, you should be hearing God's word more than once or twice per week to develop an appetite to recognize God's voice, to listen to God's voice, you're gonna need to be exposed to it more often. You'll need to make a practice of listening to God's word. To improve your ability to actively listen, regular Bible reading throughout the week is simply a must. You could start by reading through the sermon text the week uh, or even the night before the sermon is going to be preached. If you read through that, and if you sign up for the weekly email, of course, we can send you an email that will give you the discussion questions, study questions that will help you think actively to consider these uh, principles that we find in God's word in preparation for when you come so that when you come, it's, it's the, the ground has been tilled up in a sense. You're ready to receive it. You get it. There's also a sermon card on the back of the pew in front of you. There's a schedule of the things that we're going to be preaching about until the end of the year. Grab one of those and take it so that you know coming prepared for what we will be entering into together as a people. Pray to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. We all need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and to listen. Be consistent in church attendance. If you're willing to regularly make flimsy excuses to dismiss yourself from the gathering of saints, that could be a sign that you're bored with God's word. And that might be a sign that you're one of the types of soil that you shouldn't want to be like. Maybe you've heard the statement that Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. I like that. So are you working on Saturday to do what you can to make Sunday mornings more effective? Like getting enough sleep, for example. Arrive with expectation, as Lucas alluded to earlier this morning. What might God, by his Spirit, in this particular moment in time, be wanting to say to you. Sing with enthusiasm to stir up your heart, to stir up your affections in order to praise God and to value his word as you ought. Pay close attention to prayer so that by the time the prayer is done, you can can say with integrity, amen. I know what what he just said and I'm on board with it. Amen. Take notes. During the sermon, you don't have to necessarily write down everything, obviously. The main ideas are meant to be helpful. And you might think, well, that's kind of a waste of a time. I don't actually go back and review those notes during the week. I want to suggest that even if you take notes during the act of preaching, it helps your mind focus. Maybe you're different. It's definitely the way it works for me. It just helps me to follow along with the train of thought. Fight distractions. Silence your phone. Put your phone away. Use the restroom and drink water before the service starts so that you don't need to get up during the service to be a distraction for yourself or for others unless there are emergencies. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I know that people have gotten up and come back in. That didn't just happen on the fly, so I will apologize to you later if you're offended. (laughs) The principle stands. 
Ask yourself actively, track along with the thought. Ask yourself if what the preacher is saying is a right interpretation of the passage. You have to pay attention to know. Figure out if it's biblical. Is it supported with other scripture? Is he applying it rightly? These are things, these are questions that you ought to be asking, interpreting, actively listening along with the sermon. We enter God's holy church on Sundays to have our hearts reformed by his word in gathered worship, through preaching, through singing, through prayer. We meet, we are meeting with the living God. God graciously extends his gospel and we are responsible, we are culpable to receive it faithfully. That's not always the case with everyone as we know. And it wasn't the case for the majority of Israel during Paul's day. Let's keep reading from verses 18 to 21, point two. God offers his gospel to disobedient people. I'll read those verses again for us. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did, not, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul asks a question here in verse 18, and then he responds to it, he answers it, and then he alludes to the Old Testament as is his habit. He does the same thing again in verse 19. So he's asking these two questions, let's just follow along with him. And remember, these chapters here, really from nine to the end of 11, are dealing with the, the difficult fact that so many within Israel, God's chosen people, have rejected the promised Messiah. All who call on the Lord will be saved, and in order to do that, of course, you've gotta hear the message, and so the question then comes up naturally, verse 18. Okay, well maybe Israel didn't get the message then. Maybe that's why they're not responding. Have they not heard, he says? Uh, no, they've heard it. And then he riffs on Psalm 19, where he says, quote, their voice has gone out to all, their earth, all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Paul alluding to Psalm 19 here, King David wrote Psalm 19. And in the original context here, David is talking about how the, the heavens declare the glory of God throughout all the earth. So God's existence is evident throughout nature. Paul grabs onto that concept and then applies it to the gospel message that goes out now to all people. Just as the heavens declare God's existence, his church now declares his salvation. So Paul infers that the gospel has already gone out into the ends of the world. What could he mean by that? Well, we know that Paul realized that the gospel had not reached everyone yet. He says in verse, or chapter 15, the gospel still needs to go to Spain. Right? He knows that it still needs to be extended. So what does Paul mean here that it goes out to the ends of the world? I would suggest that it probably means that it includes the Gentile nations now that Israel is not the only recipient of this now, that the, the Gentile nations have brought into the people of God, like Rome, the church that he's writing to. It's not just Israel. But in any case, his point stands that Israel has heard the message of the gospel. It's gone out. Well, maybe Israel heard the, the gospel message, but they didn't understand it. This is verse 19, he says. 
Maybe they didn't understand it. No, they understood it. He quotes from Moses from Deuteronomy 32, and then he quotes Isaiah from 65, verses 1 and then 2 in a moment. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says that God told Israel that he would make them jealous by finding those who were not seeking him. And then Isaiah said that God would be found by those who were not seeking him. And in the original context, Isaiah was speaking about this faithful remnant of Israel, 65 verse 1, this faithful remnant that would return to God. Paul here grabs hold of that concept and redirects it to support what's happening now with the Gentiles. These people are turning. They have found the gospel, and they are calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. So the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people is not an accident. This is kind of what Paul is saying. This is not a surprise. This should not be shocking, Israel. You knew that this was going to happen. It was told to you a lot. This is one of the reasons why Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the prophet, is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Israel could have recognized the Messiah by reading the Old Testament, many places, but Isaiah in particular, and they should have received him. They should have known that this is the Messiah, but they didn't. And so in verse 21, he says, Israel is a disobedient and contrary people because they have rejected the word of Christ. So check out uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verses one through two. It says this, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And so Paul uses that to illustrate the fact that the Gentiles now are accepting the gospel. And then verse two, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And so Paul now uses verse two to illustrate Israel's rejection of the gospel. So Israel did not hear the gospel and that's why they weren't calling on the Lord. Maybe this is what you're, you're thinking. Maybe that's why they're not actually responding. Well, no, Paul says they definitely heard it. Well, maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe they heard it, but they didn't really quite get it. Well, no, Paul says that they understood it. The problem was that they were hard-hearted and they were rebellious, just as Jesus himself said in the gospel that we read earlier in John. This line of thought about the hard-heartedness of Israel is going to continue into chapter 11 next week, but for now, let's just, let's just note what this means for us. God's inclusion of the Gentiles means that anyone can get in on this deal. So if you think of yourself as a disobedient and rebellious person, you are being offered the gospel right now. You are being invited to turn your eyes upon Jesus to look to him alone for salvation, how will you respond? I trust that you have heard the gospel, that God is holy, that we are fallen and sinful, and that Jesus makes a way for us to be restored back into relationship with our creator. I hope you've heard and understood that even, not just heard it, but understood it. But don't leave here without realizing that there is more to faithfully responding to the gospel than simply hearing and understanding. Saving faith is said to include three acts. The first act is, of course, that you need a basic understanding of the gospel message as it is proclaimed. So you need knowledge of that gospel, and how are you going to do that unless it's heard, right? You can't believe something you haven't yet heard. Well, there's a second act. You have to understand that that gospel message is true. 
You have to assent to the fact that it is historically accurate. This happened. This isn't just something I've heard about, but it's true. It means we agree that our sin has alienated us from the life of God. We agree that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We agree that to be saved from our sin, we need to be reunited by faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, We agree that we need to submit ourselves to him to be made more like him. But we know that this is not enough, right? James says something about demons believing and shuddering. There's a third act of faith. One must exercise trust. Faith in God's promise of salvation through Christ must be responded to with trust. We must delight in the grace of God in Christ. We must rest in God's promises and cling to his promises for eternal life. It's a personal confidence that the message of the gospel is true. That's what confidence men means is confide, with faith. We don't just think that this is something we've heard or something that's true, but that's something that we can put our lives on the line with. We have confidence that he will not let us be put to shame. That's what's distinguishing the believing Gentiles in the day of Paul from the unbelieving Jews. Faith. A million different details had to line up for you to be in your pew here this morning. I can't even imagine the depth of detail of the Rube Goldberg contraption that would bring you to this place here this morning to hear this gospel message. A lot has had to happen for you to hear this, things that you'll never know about. The ball's in your court. The gospel has been served to you, and now you've got to decide what to do with it. Will you respond in loving trust and faith? God stretches out his hand. He offers you salvation if you simply call on him. It's your call. Salvation requires hearing the gospel. So the gospel must be preached and must be broadcast to all. Israel had access to this gospel, but they rejected it. And Gentiles, who were not looking for it, were found by it. So what will you do? Will you obey the gospel? I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. Let's pray.